Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward joined me in studio for the Mayor's Town Hall, where we discussed everything from the Greenbelt to brick-and-mortar cannabis stores. Also, the Ontario government is slashing $25 million in funding for specialized programs in elementary and secondary schools across the province. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's the Mayor's Town Hall. Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward is with us. Good morning. Good to have you with us today. Great to be here, Bill. It's a busy time. I was in your fair city, of course, over the weekend trying to find a parking space at Mapleview <laughs> Mall. Yeah, it's tough this time of year. Uh, yeah, 45 <laughs> minutes I think it took me, but oh, something dear. like that. But uh, anyway, great great to have you with us. Uh, a lot of stuff I want to talk about. Uh, we're mentioning about Hamilton City Council, of course, is going to be debating the cannabis issue. I know you want to talk about that, and we will in a couple of seconds. But before we get to that, I want to talk about a bill that was tabled in the Ontario legislature just before they rose for their uh, Christmas break, and it's uh, titled Bill 66, which uh, sounds rather innocuous until you start reading it. Uh, there's yeah. a lot in here. It's uh, it's got a great title, open for business. Yeah, you know, who who could be opposed to that? And of course, we're not opposed to that. Uh, however, what the bill does is allows municipalities to apply to the province for a bylaw that would relax a whole range of pieces of legislation that have been put in place to protect residents and to protect the environment. One of which is the Green Belt Act. Uh, another of which is the Clean Water Act, which of course was put into place after Walkerton and mm-hmm. the the tragic deaths in that community. So. So, you know, my position is that, first of all, we are not going to be opening the Greenbelt in Burlington for development. It shouldn't be opened up anywhere in the province for development, and I'm hoping that other mayors will uh, take a similar position on that. We shouldn't be compromising public health with uh, changes to the Clean Water Act. I believe that you can protect residents, you can protect green space, and you can be open for business, and you can cut red tape, which, of course, we will do. Let's talk a little bit about that element of it and, and, and the protection for the green belt. And, and I, I must mention, obviously, in the interest of uh, full disclosure, my wife was the, one of the inaugural members of the Green Belt Advisory Council appointed by the uh, provincial government at the time. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big supporter of it. I, I, I've got some problems with how it was implemented and that maybe this should be in, that should be out. We can debate that. I say. Mm-hmm. But the promise of, of actually protecting our, our, our wetlands and, and some of the green areas and, of course, agricultural land, uh, I think is sacrosanct. I, I'm surprised that the government would even consider something like this. Well, that's exactly right. And they, you know, they've walked it back a little saying this isn't intended to open the green belt up. Well, then take it out of the list. Don't even make it a possibility under the bill. So that's the first step that they will have to do, I believe, when they come back in February, is if you mean what you say, and let's take you at your word, then don't allow any municipality to apply for changes to the green belt. Well, it's a side door entrance, isn't it? I mean, I know that, that, that Doug Ford talked about this during the campaign, and uh, uh, after the, the pushback he got from that, he said, no, 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 we're going to protect it, we're going to protect it. But by saying, okay, but if a municipality asks for permission mm-hmm. and gives us a bit, pretty good business case, we'll allow it. Well, that, that's not protecting. That That's not protecting. And let's remember that there is business and economic development that takes place in our Greenbelt. We have active working farms. There's, there's one farm uh, off of Dundas in Berlin, Burlington, right behind a greenhouse that has over 100 different varieties of pears. We ship them all over North America. I mean, it's incredible what we have here. And so when we talk about being open for business, we need to be open for business in our agricultural areas, which means protecting them from development. And whether that's factories, whether that's, you know, they say it's not residential, it's only for business uses. But you know, the push is going to 
come for the residential sure or for mixed use. That's that's the other you know side door entrance that uh, is often used is well let's do mixed use which sounds all well and good and you get a fraction of economic development and a whole pile of residential units. The the rationale behind this obviously is uh, and again it goes back to that meeting that Doug Ford had I guess with some developers uh, that, who asked uh, for this sort of thing. But we still have serviceable land. We still have lots of room to grow. Maybe not as much as some people would like, but it's still there. It's it's not as if we're in a crisis situation. We're not, and especially not here in Burlington. We have lots of vacant uh, land that is along the QE corridor on both, both sides. We call that our prosperity corridor. Mm-hmm. It's it's empty or underutilized. Nothing has been built there, and we are trying to you know, attract people to to be in that land. We don't need to open the green belt to have space for economic development. And one of the biggest challenges that we run into is Ministry of Transportation of Ontario approvals and permits. They they take an awfully long time. So I'm I'm encouraging Mr. Ford to actually cut the red tape at his end and speed along the permits and approval process. And one of the things that we did in Burlington uh, about a year and a half ago in one of our budgets is we we seeded um, money alongside Halton Region, alongside the Ministry of Transportation, to look into that permitting process to see if we could expedite and do a pilot project because we need to unlock those lands that are already within our built-up boundary, that are near transit, that is near highways. That's the first step for us here in Burlington, and my guess is that other municipalities have similar situations. Well, we do in Hamilton. I mean, our agricultural business in the city here is over a billion dollars a year, and that's yeah. that's the agri-food business alone. Uh, and I know the numbers are, are similar in Burlington, obviously, uh, which, which begs the question, why would they even consider something like this? But I, I guess the concern a lot of people seem to have right now, though, and, and again, this is this is a proposed bill. I mean, it's been tabled, but it hasn't been passed yet. There'll be a debate mm-hmm. on this, I'm sure, when they get back to work in February. Is, is this going to put undue pressure on the municipalities? Because obviously those that want to do develop in there, uh, developers, builders, whatever it's going to be, are going to be putting an awful lot of pressure on Burlington, Hamilton, and other communities to say, you got to let us in here. Of course, yeah, they they will be putting a lot of pressure, and I'm all for municipalities having more control over development. And so, instead of giving us the option to opt out of very necessary pieces of legislation that protect our residents, protect public health, protect our agricultural economy, protect the green belt, instead of giving us the power to override that, what I'd like the premier to do is give us, you know, make the LPAT slash OMB the tribunal that can overrule municipalities on development. Give us the power to control our own development. That That's for starters. Give us more power to uh, control cannabis retail outlets. Those are the powers that municipalities are looking for, not the option to override very important and necessary pieces of legislation. Do you feel sometimes as if municipalities are getting the short end of the stick when it comes to things like this? I mean, uh, you're, not, you're not looking for autonomy necessarily, but you are looking for, like you say, more freedom to, to govern the way that Burlington should be governed as opposed to the way that, that Queen's Park thinks Burlington should be governed. Absolutely. I, I think that's one of the biggest ways that we can can cut 
red tape is actually by divesting the province of some of the decision-making power, giving it to the municipality. That would speed approvals in a nanosecond if we had the, the ability to make decisions in a timely fashion and to stick to them. And just taking the one issue of development alone, there are millions and millions of dollars that are spent fighting things out at the um, the local planning appeal tribunal, the, the, the new iteration of the Ontario Municipal Board. That costs everybody money and that gets added to the price of housing. So if you want to have affordable housing, instead of opening the green belt, eliminate the tribunal. Just eliminate it and let municipalities work with developers to come up with good development applications. That's just one small change that could save everybody time and money. And I'm not trying to, by the way, paint these guys as the bad guys with the black hats or anything. Development is good. Investment in communities is good. And, and there's some wonderful people that do some incredible things uh, in every community. I know you have some great ones that taught some upstanding members of, of the Burlington community to do that. But you also know that they all, okay, this is the procedure, so we're going to go through planning, we're going to do this, mm-hmm. we'll have the public meeting. But they also, in the back ha- of their pockets, they know that, look, at if I don't like what the city says, I'll just run to the tribunal. Absolutely. And and we've had that where um, the day after the 180 days under the old system ran out, uh, there was a staff recommendation. We were, we were scheduled to debate the development. The developer took it to the board. There was no, there was no effort or interest in working with the community and working with the city to come up with the best development possible. I've had three developments in Ward 2 in the last uh, four years where the developers did work very closely with residents, work very closely with planning staff, and they everyone had to make some compromises. Everyone had to make some changes, but at the end of the day, there was unanimous approval from the community, staff, council to support those development applications in the downtown, which is a controversial place to to develop. But but we can do it. We have done it. And that I think everybody agreed at the end of the day that those developments were were better because of going through that process. And that's that's the kind of process we need to follow. But when there's a tribunal that is sitting, you know, it's the elephant in the room, everybody knows that somebody will take you there if they don't feel like working with the community. And so until that incentive is gone, it, it's really a disincentive for some developers to work with the community. Well, exactly, because they, there's always going to be an opportunity for middle ground. But if they know that we hey, we don't have to do this, they're not going to in, in many cases. Yeah, and they don't. And, and you know, even worse, when the switchover happened between the Ontario Municipal Board to the Local Planning Appeal Tribunal, there were some good changes that were made in that process. The, the time to process uh, complex applications increased to 210 days. That was a good start. They put a far more emphasis on local planning. But what happened was there was a flood of applications that the day those under the old system, that 180-day clock, ran out, there was a flood of applications that came forward to have the board here so that developers could preserve their rights under the old system, which they knew was preferable to them. And so we right now have a bunch of applications where the developers all along have said, we really want to work with the community, we want to get, but we're just tucking this little application into the OMB uh, just to preserve our appeal rights should we need them. And of course, as soon as that happens, decision making is taken away from the community and so much of it goes behind closed doors because you're receiving legal advice in respect of these applications. It is the worst system possible. 
Let's talk a little bit about maybe what they could do. I, I, I agree with you. I think Greenbelt legislation should be sacrosanct and not touched at all. But there has been some discussion over the last little while about perhaps a reevaluation of the places to grow policy mm-hmm. that was adopted by by the McGuinney government that goes that far back. Uh, that, that maybe it's being misinterpreted, maybe it's being interpreted too closely to the letter of the law, uh, that maybe there should be some flexibility there. What are your thoughts on that? What's happening with places to grow is that it is seen as, um, you know, the minimum development possible. And that's written into the legislation that the the forecasts for population growth are minimums. But you don't want to vary too far from those minimums because your infrastructure is planned in accordance with the forecasted population that you're expected to take. And your development charges, which you collect on each new unit of housing to handle population growth, that is also tied to the forecasts of population. So in Burlington, for example, we were allocated under places to grow 185,000 people by 2031. We were at 183,000 in 2016 census. We are at or beyond our minimum forecasted growth and we're there 13 years early. And what that means is that we have not planned our infrastructure to keep up with that growth. So people feel the pinch of traffic jams. Our transit has not caught up and kept up. And that is true across the GTA, that transit Mm -hmm. has has come nowhere close to keeping pace with population growth. And so we have, you know, we have uh, a situation where we've met our growth forecasts, and but we haven't had the infrastructure to keep up. And so one of the messages that I want to convey to Queens Park is, and, and this isn't unique to Burlington, is slow it down. We're, we're going gangbusters on growth. And, and it's actually the, the speculation, the land speculation is what's causing the affordability to skyrocket. Are they listening? Well, we you, you, uh, we you had a face to face with the premier the other day. He <laughs> was in did. town. I did, so we didn't. Uh, Maybe not we, the time we, or place. We, it wasn't the time or place to talk about this. But he uh, he very warmly extended an invitation to come to Queens Park, which I will set up in the new year, and and we'll go and talk to some of the the um, mayors in the GTA because we're all feeling the same. It's really just a difference of scale. It's not a difference of issue. We're all facing affordability, transportation, transit crisis, and those are the issues that I heard most loudly in the election campaign. It's interesting how there's a common thread through an awful lot of these, whether you're talking Hamilton, Burlington, Mississauga, whatever it is. Uh, you mentioned transit. I mean, that's that's obviously a common problem in just about every community right now. Uh, places to Grow is a wonderful read, uh, yeah. <laughs> but but there's also a responsibility, or there should have been anyway, on the province's part to keep up and to, to, to supply the tools necessary, and they haven't done a very good job of that. Well, and the other thing that has fallen behind in Halton region is that the province downloads certain programs to the region to carry out on behalf of the province, and we have cost-shared agreements with them, whether it's 50% cost-shared or 75 or 100%. And when you look at the cost-shared programs, the province hasn't kept up with their share of funding. So right now, it's roughly $9 million a year that the region subsidizes these these provincial programs that are downloaded to us to carry out. So, you know, we there's there's a lot of things that we need to fix in terms of the relationship that we have with the province. We need not only the funding to do what uh, we have been tasked with doing, but we need the authority and the legislative ability to do those things once and for all. And that would speed 
the process of, of doing business and the, the ability to take care of our community. That right there. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's uh, the Mayor's Town Hall, Burlington Mayor. Marianne Mead Ward is with us here in studio. A couple of other things I want to get to, though, and we'll throw these out on the table, and you may have some comments or some questions for the uh, the mayor about this. Uh, let's talk about cannabis. We mm-hmm. mentioned uh, on CHML News here that Hamilton Council is going to be debating this this week. Uh, you've got some pretty strong feelings about that, though. We Just for people that may not know, mm-hmm. uh, the province has given an opt-in, opt-out uh, op- opportunity for every municipality. I guess you got about a month now before you have to make January a decision. January 22nd. Yeah, yeah, so it's coming up pretty quickly now. Yeah. Uh, your thoughts on it? I support having retail cannabis. It's a legal product. Our residents uh, have a, a right to access this legal product. And we can help to eliminate the black market by having retail stores. It's the same as, you know, pre-prohibition, the prohibition days. And when we legalized alcohol, you take the crime out of it, right? Uh, we also have access, if we opt in, uh, to some funding that will help with enforcement issues that are already with us today. So folks are concerned about, well, what about smoking cannabis in public? That's one of the things that the province has actually given us the opportunity to to legislate ourselves. So we can pass laws around smoking in parks. Uh, We already actually have a bylaw that you can't smoke cigarettes in parks. And so whatever we do with smoking cigarettes, we're allowed to extend that to cannabis. We could also pass uh, legislation to keep smoking of any product away from an open retail business door. So right now, it only applies to public uh, buildings like um, a long-term care center or city hall or a community center. But we could extend that to private businesses as well, and I think we should. So those issues are with us today, regardless of whether somebody gets their cannabis in the mail or gets it at a retail outlet in Burlington or some other community. We're going to have to face the issue of smoking in public, and we have access to resources if we opt in. If we opt out and then opt in later, we don't have access to any of that provincial funding. The concerns, and I've heard this from some of the Hamilton City Councilors, and I'm sure you've heard it at Burlington City Hall as well, is, as you mentioned, these ongoing costs and policing costs, et cetera. And, and I'm wondering if this is really overblown. And I'm, I'm not looking at this with rose-colored glasses. But but it is, as you mentioned, a legal mm-hmm. substance now. Uh, we don't have police in front of LCBO stores. We don't have mm-hmm. them in front of variety stores where they sell cigarettes. I mean, there, there may well be noncompliance, but th- there's a protocol in place for that already, isn't there? There actually is, and the police have already had for for decades to deal with impaired driving, and that includes being impaired by cannabis. I mean, that's that's with us now. So the police are able to um, enforce that right now, have to enforce it right now. And again, whether or not you have you acquire your cannabis from a retail store in your community or some other way, the police will have to continue to check for impaired driving. And whether that's opioids, whether that's cannabis, whether that's alcohol, that's already built into their budget. So there's not going to be additional costs from that. That is with us today. It's the Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario that is going to be enforcing the rules around um, who can who can open, who, where they can locate, as well as making sure with spot checks, the same way they do with bars, to make sure that none of those retail outlets are selling to anybody under 19. And in fact, nobody under 19 can even enter 
a retail outlet. So the enforcement is actually with the Alcohol and Gaming Commission, and that's a provincial cost. That is not going to be on Burlington taxpayers. So obviously the licensing aspect is going to be a provincial thing, but uh, the enforcement falls to the municipality. But as you mentioned, no more so than it already is. Yeah, we already have enforcement issues that we've absorbed, and the only other additional cost will be smoking enforcement, uh, smoking in public places enforcement. And so if we do uh, want to extend our bylaw to keep smoking away from um, from businesses and residential doorways, then uh, we would have to have bylaw officers to enforce that. There is provincial funding available for that. And so why would we disadvantage our own taxpayers? Because as I said, whether that person who's smoking in public acquires their cannabis from a retail store or in the mail, we still will have to deal with the smoking in public issue. It's here now. And so having some access to provincial funding uh, would help us. So so these are two completely separate issues. Where you get your cannabis is one issue. Dealing with uh, impaired driving and smoking in public is a completely separate issue. The other element to this, of course, is the uh, the stipulation that the province announced last week that uh, only 25 shops are going to be open in the whole province, Yeah, uh, which is disappointing, I think, to some municipalities. I think a lot of municipalities that we're looking at this, not as a, not as a, it's not a mother law, but it could be a revenue stream. Clearly, there's going to be some haves and some have-nots now. There will be, and this is this is a supply issue. So because it's very controlled, the supply is extremely regulated, there isn't enough supply for more than the 25 licenses. So I think that helps a lot with, with folks who were concerned that, wow, there's no cap on any municipality in terms of how many stores could be open. Technically, that's true, but we see that, like anything, it's supply and demand. If there's no supply, you're not going to have a proliferation of retail outlets. So I think that has helped to calm down some of the concern that there'd be a pot shop on every block. It it simply isn't going to happen anywhere in the GTA and certainly not in Burlington. Have you had any inquiries, any interest at all in, in the industry itself, locating some of their operations in Burlington? Oh, absolutely. We had a committee meeting last week and we had three different cannabis supply companies come and talk to us, two of which uh, have their major companies that have already opened in Saskatchewan, Alberta, and Manitoba, where it's been legal a little a little sooner. So there are retail outlets that are opening there. One uh, retailer described his ethos as the Apple of cannabis stores, and you know think of think of what Apple looks like. It's very clean. It's you know a lot of glass, a lot of windows. It's not the you know the head shops of Young Street back in the day in Toronto. You know I remember those when I was a kid. Mm. We lived there uh, in. In Toronto when I was 10, 11 years old and when we, you know, Young Street was a whole different thing. And so I think people still have that image in their mind of what a retail outlet store is going to look like. And it's the tie dye and the big bongs and, you know, and, and some shady activity going on. That's not what we're talking about here. The The regulations around advertising alone, which are federally regulated uh, as well, you can't advertise uh, on the outside of your store, you it, you know it, when when they showed us pictures of their outlets in uh, out west, you wouldn't even know it was a cannabis store. You, you wouldn't know. And and the the windows, you can't see in to see the product, the security measures that are required, the background checks for who can open. They're really trying to make sure that organized crime is not a part of any of this. So to get to jump the hoops to get a license in the first place is very, very challenging and tens of thousands of dollars. So, you know, there's a lot of controls that are put in place to make sure that uh, all the I's have been dotted and the T's crossed. 
Uh, this is a multi-billion dollar business and has it been for quite is. some time. It certainly is. And actually, there's um, uh, one of the people that came and delegated to us at uh, at committee last week is a lifelong Burlington resident. He quit his job in Toronto because he was was tired of the soul-sucking, time-sucking commute and uh, and believes this is a legitimate product and put his life savings into opening a store. He already has a signed lease ready to go in a retail store. He even told us where it was in Burlington. And, you know, he, he's ready to invest. And those uh, those businesses said they employ 10 to 15 people per store. This is a this is a legitimate business opportunity for people, and it is no different than uh, people who consume alcohol. And you know, the the interesting thing in Burlington is that the vast majority of people who are uh, speaking out on this are in favor of the retail stores. And and one of the key things they're saying is, let's not be hypocritical. Come on, if you drink wine, if you've had you know a couple to to have a buzz or to relax and go to sleep, that's no different than somebody having a joint like it, no different it's the same legalize it control it take the criminal element out of it and get some funding from the province to help with all the other issues that are already with us today but you're still i'm sure you're still getting some of that pushback though like you say there's still a perception in some people's minds that this is all about cheech and chong and, yeah. and not about a legitimate industry people, the biggest concern so we talked about the smoking in public which again is a completely separate issue from where you buy your cannabis we talked about the uh the potential for impaired driving again Again, completely separate issue from where you buy your, your cannabis. Those issues we'll have to deal with. The, the other biggest issue is keeping it away from children, keeping it out of the hands of children, and, and that distance separator from schools. So uh, is 150 meters the right amount from schools? It's a little light, I think. But you can't even walk into a store if you're under 19. So this, So, you know, young people can get cannabis now. And they do. You can get the paraphernalia. You, you when, can, when my kids you were can, going to school, when they were in, in elementary school, there was a variety store right across the road that was selling paraphernalia, bongs absolutely. and everything. I'd figure, come on, you know, hookah pipes and everything. So they're exposed to that. At least they were anyway. They, well, they and they still are. So, so that... You know, what we're really hoping and what I'm really hoping is that by having retail outlets, it will really make the the black market for this product diminish. It will make it less profitable, less available because people have another option where they can go into a retail store, they can get a controlled product, they know what they're buying, they know it's controlled, they know the the level of THC in it, they know, you know, they, they know what they're getting. It's so highly regulated, which is way better than having somebody buy it in the back alley and you don't know the strength and you don't know if there's additives. And so eliminating that, I think, will go a long way towards keeping it out of the hands of our children. They, you know, people will find a way to get it, um, but but we eliminate the criminal element. I think that makes all of us safer, including our children. With uh, Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward uh, here on the Bill Keller Show at 900 CHML. Uh, last time you were here, you were talking about the official plan. And, and this is uh, akin, I guess, to handing a paper into your teacher and then sending mm-hmm. it back with all sorts of red marks and said, fix this, <laughs> fix this, fix this. You've, you had some homework to do. Uh, we do, yeah. So the region uh, identified several areas of what they call non-conformity with regional uh, or provincial plans. And so what that does for Burlington is that pushes pause on the approval process and it stops the clock. We talked about that earlier mm-hmm. in the hour that if a, if a, a city or a region does not make a decision on an official plan within a certain amount of days, that's 210 days, same as a development application, anybody 
body can appeal that plan to the local planning appeal tribunal for non-decision. That 210-day clock ran out December 8. On December 4, the, the day after the inauguration, we heard from the region that there were areas of nonconformity and they were pushing pause. That pause is indefinite. So that stops the clock. So we can't get appealed for non-decision. You know, we're past the December 8 date. But the other thing that it does for us is that it allows Burlington City Council to bring any additional changes to the plan that we wish. And that was the central issue in the election campaign is that people were not on for the plan, but particularly not on for the changes that were made to add heightened density to the downtown and and a couple of specific areas in the downtown. So we now have an opportunity um, without a deadline to take our time to make those changes, to do some public engagement. We we won't take forever, uh, but we'll take some time. We don't have a clock that we have to worry about, and we'll we'll do it right, and we'll make sure that the community is on board, and then send it back in addition to the changes that the region has asked us to make. That's got to be a a huge relief for you, though, to know that the sand's not running out of the hourglass here and you've got some time to actually, for sober second thought, really, with some of these things. Well, this was this was the biggest issue in the campaign. In a sense, it was a referendum on the downtown official plan, and, and residents resoundingly rejected it. And and the great thing that, that we all learned during the campaign was that everybody in the city cares about what happens downtown. Everyone feels a sense of ownership of it. And and so, so that's the biggest thing that needs to change. But there are some other issues in the official plan that came up in other areas of the of the city that we need to address, and now we'll have the time to do that. So we're we're going to take some months, uh, perhaps uh, toward the end of 2019, we'll have this tied up in a bow and ready to send back to the region. I, I know you're right. I mean, downtown is the one that made all the headlines because of, of density, because of height, etc. But I mean, you've got issues in Aldershot and many other areas as well. Yeah, they're struggling with overdevelopment. In fact, it's in every neighborhood. So that's why I think we saw the degree of change on council that we did with uh, only one council member returning and, and I'm I'm returning as a, in a new role. So we have five new people on council and every single one of them heard in each of their wards about a specific area or development that was overdevelopment as well as about the larger issue of the downtown and, and you know, the, the twin issues we talked earlier of traffic and transit. Those are issues that arise when you're growing faster than your infrastructure and your and your growth forecast, which we did in Burlington. We're 13 years ahead of our growth forecast, and we don't have transit and transportation that's keeping up, or community centers, or parks. And so people are starting to feel that pinch and that their quality of life has been compromised, and that's why we saw the degree of change that we did. So now we have an opportunity to push reset and get it right. Because of the new faces, though, do you know? Do you, do you see a, a different perspective? I mean, obviously, change is is, is always going to be interesting. But uh, when you have veteran counselors, whatever city we're talking about here, invariably you tend to have the same variations, mm-hmm. uh, maybe the odd variation, but the same theme basically. But th- this is this is basically a clean slate for you guys. Th- this is a clean slate, and it's great for me uh, as a, as the mayor because. You know, they the community ju- didn't just change the mayor. They sent me a team of people that we could actually do the changes that need to take place. People that don't have any baggage, don't have, you know, they're there 
Um, they're not they're not people saying, well, we've never done it like that or we can't do it like that. And here's all the reasons why they have no baggage. They have no um, institutional allegiance to the way things were. And in fact, they were elected on a change mandate. So every single one of them brings significant skills to the table. We've got several business people. We've got people who've worked in health and social services sector. Um, you know, all of them have served the community in one way or the other, sat on boards. So they have that experience. They will hit the ground running, even though this the municipal iteration is a new role for them. They have the the skills and the experience they need to hit the ground they're running and they have. You know, everyone is so keen to get started. We're all we're all just so excited. We come to work every day with a spring in our step and a smile on our face. Uh, very quickly, I know we mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago that the, the premier was in town a couple of days ago uh, for the official opening mm-hmm. of uh, of the new Joe Brandt Hospital. It's uh, it's got to be gratifying and probably a big relief to be able to check that box and say this is finally done. It's it's been hanging over city council for a long time. It's something that's been needed. You know, when we when we started it, it was already uh, you know a decade or two mm-hmm. behind. And I uh, I joined the board of the hospital as a citizen in two thousand and seven and. Um, you know, at that time we were saying, yeah, we really need to get on with a redevelopment. We're, we're already behind in terms of the number of beds, the, the facility itself. We need more private rooms, which is better for health outcomes and for infection control. People, our doctors and nurses were doing amazing miracle work in very cramped conditions. You know, technology had outpaced us, you know, on every measure that hospital needed to be updated and renovated. And, and in 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 reality, in the life of uh, of government decision making, that that whole approval from the time we got the approval to shovel in the ground to build and complete was lightning speed. I know it felt like a long time because people <laughs> had been waiting a generation for it, but it really moved along very quickly once there was a will. And and city council, of course, uh, contributed sixty million dollars through the tax base. There was another sixty million in fundraising. Actually, the number we got, um, the updated number, was sixty five million. So the community really came out for this, and the government, uh, the provincial government kicked in over 300 million for that. So everybody came together to make this happen and recognize the need. And it, it, it's a, an incredible facility. And we know our people are uh, are in good hands when they go there. Uh, we're just about out of time. Thanks so much for coming in. Uh, we won't see you again until, I guess, the new year. So uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family. Merry Christmas. Have Happy a little New bit Year. Of, have a little bit of downtime. <laughs> I will have a little bit, yes. I will be sitting with my sweats on the couch for a couple yeah. days. At least, at least the morning of the 25th anyway. <laughs> That's right. Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward. Thanks again. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. On Friday, uh, just as uh, school boards were closing up the offices for the weekend, just around 5 o'clock, a number of them got uh, emails and memos from the Ministry of Education uh, that talked about slashing about $25 million in funding for specialized programs in elementary and secondary schools right across the province. Uh, obviously, the shockwaves are still being felt about this. Joining us to talk about the uh, the program and uh, the implications, Alex Johnstone, who is, of course, the chairman of the board for the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. This must have hit you like a, a, a ton of bricks on Friday. It was certainly a shock. Uh, as I say, it was late in the day, so there's not a whole lot of time for everybody to digest this. But maybe you could give us a sense as to exactly what you heard and, and how this is going to impact the Hamilton board, for instance, Alex. 
Well, Bill, when the memos came out Friday and the news began to spread, um, certainly it created a lot of concern. Uh, parents and educational staff were immediately concerned. They immediately started asking, how would this impact our students? People were concerned about how this would impact jobs, especially as we are heading into the holiday season. Um, and I think that uh, what we what's really important for us to stress is that at HWDSB, we are calmly reviewing the memos. Um, so there's quite a large number of uh, documents that are included in this memo. So we will know by Wednesday latest the exact impact. We're still going through that data and we're going through it as quickly as possible. Um, that said, um, I think that it's important to note that it's not just the cuts themselves that creates a challenge for school boards, it's, it's also the timing. Um, we're in the middle of a fiscal year, so in speaking with board chairs across the province over the weekend, there is growing concern about our ability as school boards to implement cuts when in many cases money has already been spent. Um, so I think, to be fair, um, with this government, I think many boards were anticipating cuts coming in the spring budget. Uh, we're not sure where those will be as of yet, but um, to have them in the middle of the school year um, that or in the fiscal year, that was a bit of a surprise. Well, let, let's talk about some of them, because I, I, I understand that you can't be too specific about this because you're still kind of sifting through this. But as just an overall uh, look at this, Alex, it's, it appears as if an awful lot of the programs that are going to be impacted, not just on the Hamilton board, but in other boards, are, are to do with students at risk, uh, students that need extra help, tutoring, uh, or you know potentially people that are having some socioeconomic problems. Uh, there were some programs uh, that were in place before that, and it looks like those are the ones that are going to be on the chopping block. So other boards have already um, been identifying where programs are, are where there's cuts. Um, our board is not uh, in that position. Most boards um, have not gone into that detail yet. What I can say, Bill, is that we have a phenomenal um, finance team. Uh, we've been really prudent with our spending, um, especially over the last few years. And so uh, we are confident that we're in very good shape. Um, we're, it's just at this point trying to determine um, is, is our board going to be one of the boards that has already spent money um, and which programs. So we can't speculate at this point. Um, there really is a large number of memos that we're going through. I think, you know, the message that we really want to stress locally is that we will continue to review our budget through the lens of our strategic direction. So we will continue to focus on reading, math, graduation, positive culture. Uh, we will continue to work with our community partners to address gaps because we do have we have one of the we have the second highest uh, level of child poverty rate in the province. One in five children uh, do live in poverty that are coming to our schools each day, and we really want to stress that um, uh, that anything that impacts our most vulnerable students, we will pay special attention to, and we will find ways to continue to support them. We do not want the community to think that our students will be left without the supports that they need. We will ensure that um, other supports are found in order to meet those needs. Well, and that's going to put an awful lot of pressure on, on your board and every other board. The, the, this, the basic program, I guess, that the, the province seems to be targeting here, Alex, I'm sure obviously you know this, but just for the sake of our listeners, uh, it's mm -hmm. called Education Programs Other, now there's EPO. And, and basically, I guess the, the best way to characterize that 
is that it's a series of programs, I guess, that were put in place to help those that are falling between the cracks, I guess, with the, the education system. And uh, and, and it, the, the fact that those are being targeted right now has got to be somewhat problematic and I think very concerning because the Hamilton Board in particular and you and I have talked about this in the past, have been, I think, outstanding in, in, in creating those programs and to reach out to people that are falling behind and need extra help. Uh, we have been, and we, especially in the last few years, we've begun to see um, some significant gains in our priority schools, so schools that have the um, students that are coming from some of the most... Um, I guess they have additional challenges that they're facing um, in terms of their socioeconomic backgrounds, um, uh, and that's where our staff have done a tremendous job. I think, you know, people are concerned, and they should be. Uh, we are hopeful, though, um, that we can continue to have conversations with the ministry. Uh, just last week, trustees, myself included, met with the Minister of Education. She attended our provincial association uh, meeting, and, um, you know, it's, if anything, we really want to continue to have that relationship with the ministry, continue to uh, not just highlight why these programs are important, and um, but, you know, if they are facing those pressures, they are looking to make cuts, um, it's about working with local school boards about um, how can we meet student needs in a different way rather than just simply cutting. Well, and again, I don't want to get too specific about this, but I'm sure there are many parents listening right now that understand some of this because you've 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 tailored certain programs to certain students that that basically can't fit into the quote unquote regimen that, that everyone else would have to. Uh, and I'd hate to think that those are the ones that are going to get left behind if, in fact, these cuts are going to have an impact on some of those programs. And that's where we're seeing at HWDSB that um, uh, regardless of, of what the cuts are now or perhaps in the future uh, with the spring budget is that we will be uh, doing everything within our power to ensure that those needs continue to be met perhaps in a different way. And um, that is um, that is our commitment locally. That is our priority. Um, so we, uh, just because funding for a program disappears uh, doesn't, it makes it that much more challenging, no doubt, um, but uh, we will continue to look to meet those needs because that's, that's what we have to do. I, I know you don't want to get too political about this, but uh, that doesn't mean I can't. Uh, <laughs> uh, what bothered me about this whole thing it was, was some comments from, from a ministry spokesperson uh, talking about this, and, and they talked again about this program, the EPO program, and basically said that uh, they've done an analysis of this, and they said there's a, a track record of wasteful spending, overspending, and millions of dollars of unfunded commitments. Uh, no examples of it, by the way. They didn't justify this or validate this by saying, here's where some of the wasteful spending uh, was in situations like this. And, and and I take exception, and I'm sure you and the other board members would take exception, to, to these sorts of programs being labeled as wasteful spending. I mean, this is the, this is basically reaching out to students that are in need of specific programs and offering them those programs so that they can progress. I think, you know, more to that as well, Bill, even if there is a concern that a program's not meeting its desired outcome, um, then work to change it, right? Work to change it, um, you know, implement, um, you know, more checks and balances, um, alter it, um, but to completely remove a support is, um, is concerning. You want to ensure that the, the student need is still there uh, at the, you know, by cutting it, um, the support entirely, you still need to make sure that um, that you are working to pr- meet that need. And and right now, that's that's 
perhaps not what's happening. So, uh, and that's where local school boards are going to work extremely hard to ensure that we do um, meet those needs, um, if not through the um, programs that we have um, currently in place, then we will look to continue to meet those needs uh, through another means. Are these uh, the announcements, and again, I just say, I know that you're doing the analysis on how it's going to have an impact on the board, Alex, but uh, obviously this is this is immediate. I mean, this is taking place as of now. Uh, I'd hate to think that the board's going to be in a position where they're going to have to go back to a family and say, I know this program that uh, for your child was in place, but we're not so sure we can continue it anymore. That's kind of leaving the student high and dry, isn't it? Those, would be cert- those are certainly hard conversations. Um that said, uh, again, I really want to stress, Bill, that we're going to be working to ensure those gaps are filled. So um, programs come in and out all the time. Um, whatever, uh, as governments change, as, uh, as we learn more within education, uh, certainly curriculum changes over time. Uh, so that said, uh, when we're talking about our most vulnerable students, um, that's where locally we will be working very hard to ensure that um, that there's um, the least amount of impact on our uh, students as possible let's uh, let's talk about long range for a second here uh, the, the reason for the impetus I guess for this whole thing really Alex uh, for uh, the sake of our listeners is uh, that the government the, the Ford government did say they were going to do an analysis I guess they're doing it over just every ministry but I mean you knew that the education uh, portfolio was was under review right now uh, and but this came a, as a bit of a shock are you anticipating that there could be further changes now that uh, they finished their review uh, apparently they, actually it finished on Saturday I they made this announcement before they even te- technically finished the review on this so uh, is there a concern right now that maybe, well, there's more to come here? Um, I think that uh, I think most of us are anticipating some additional changes. Um, so, so far we've had, um, we've had a couple of different announcements. Um, uh, the ministry has been very clear that they're, they're looking to make changes. And uh, as a result of the parent engagement survey, I think that we can also uh, anticipate further changes to come. That said, I'm, I really am hopeful that uh, the ministry will continue to work uh, with school boards. Uh, we are the front line. We know our communities. We know our students, uh, trustees in particular. Um, we know how difficult these decisions can be um, because we're talking about our most precious a- asset, our children, our future. And um, and trustees certainly know that best. Um, with that, um, we are a valuable resource, and we, and we hope that the ministry will continue to work with us um, in terms of uh, ensuring that the needs of our students are met. The concern, obviously, for the Hamilton Board, though, as you just uh, alluded to, Alex, is you're right in the middle of a budget cycle now. I mean, there's money that's been allocated. Now, all of a sudden, uh, if there's no money coming forward on this, uh, it's not as if there's a money trio back at the board building up on the mountain there. I mean, you're going to have to find the money someplace, and yet, then you have to wonder about the domino effect. What other programs are going to be impacted by that attempt to try to find money for some of the other programs that you want to maintain? So, and that's interesting that you bring that up, Bill, because school boards are the only level of government that are required by law to balance a budget. Yeah. And um, so we we write, we um, have very tight budgets. Uh, we are certainly the most monitored and supervised sector um, out of all the uh, provincial sectors, and, and rightly so, because we are talking about students. Um, that said, it's there's not a lot of wiggle room. 90% of board budgets are um, 
completely allocated. We're not able to switch money from envelope to envelope or from budget line to budget line. It's very strict how our money is spent. Um, so when the cuts are made, it, it does pose um, big challenges, especially within uh, the school sector, because it's, um, there's not a lot of wiggle room to begin with. That said, that's where we'll be reaching out to our communities, and that's also where we're going to be um, as we board across the province and locally in Hamilton as we begin to better understand what the impact is of, um, of Friday's announcement, we'll also be communicating back to the ministry about how we can make this happen or if we're also going to need a little bit more flexibility. And, um, you know, it's uh, recognize they're in, um, the, I guess they feel that they're in a, a tight spot uh, fiscally, um, but uh, hoping to have that relationship in terms of, because we're all, we're all in this together. Well, absolutely. And, I, and look, and I understand every time a new government comes in, there's always this this aura of fiscal responsibility. We get that. And, and they made mention of that, of course, with the announcement on Friday that they want to make sure they're getting a bang for their buck. I guess that's the best way to characterize it. Uh, and I understand that nothing, whether it's going to be health care or education, is going to be sacrosanct and untouchable. But at the same time, you'd think that they'd be looking for cost savings and efficiencies, to use their phrase, someplace else instead of the basic programs for students. And I think that's where school boards, too, um, you know, it's about working with us, um, getting feedback from us, as we may have other suggestions about um, or, or be, be able to go through what the full impact will be. You know, when you so that they can also make informed decisions about if they're introducing cuts, um, they may decide to to go about it in a slightly different way or in a slightly different area. Um, and so, having those conversations uh, with school boards allows for that extra bit of input, uh, which is always greatly appreciated. Well, I just got a big challenge toss at you. Good luck with this, Alex. I know it's going to be uh, tough for you guys to wrestle this, but uh, we'll stay in touch as you guys get the analysis done, and I'm sure we can talk about these impacts later on. Thanks for this today. Thank you, Bill. Alex Johnson, of course, the uh, trustee and chairman of the board for the Hamilton Board of Education. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.